Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. This has been a, a wild day or two. Um, not, nobody's quite sure how long it is. He is, all of chapter eight has been one or two days. And the Lord is ministering in the temple area down in Jerusalem. It's fall, probably October. Uh, he came down in the middle of the week of, of the Feast of Booths, uh, great numbers, hundreds of thousands of people have come into the city. So it's, the place is just packed with people. He's gone down and he's ministering in Jerusalem during that time. And he's been teaching. And in the course of his, his teaching, uh, many uh, of the, even the religious leaders have believed. But others have not only not believed, but have become more and more antagonistic and decided, really want to kill him. They've wanted to kill him for a long time, but it's, it's, it's getting very deep. He has just made a remark, and he, a remark. He's just proclaimed himself and said this, these words: "Before Abraham was, what? I am. In other words, before our patriarch, who lived twenty centuries ago, I existed. Now, what that says is obvious. It is absolutely mind-boggling. He is saying, "I am the divine Son of God, and I pre-existed." Some of these leaders that are hostile have picked up stones to throw at him, but there it says he was hidden, or actually, he, yeah, he didn't hide himself. He was hidden. What I think is the, 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 those who love him, those who believe in him, have surrounded him. I mean, it's, you probably have 100, you can have 100,000 people on that Temple Mount. It's 36 acres. 36 acres of flat stone. And, and so this, this place, this is a milling mass, you know, probably in all of this. So he's, 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 been, he's been taken out and he goes out of the temple. Now, if I had a group of people that wanted to stone me and I had gotten out, I'd keep going. I mean, I would keep going and you would find me, you know, somewhere with a good sense of distance between us. Amen. Uh, he heads out of the temple. I thought, and on, as he's going out, he sees a beggar, blind from birth, by the side of the road, and stops and ministers to him. Don't you love Jesus? Yeah. Is he got guts or what? Come on. He is just amazing. All right, here's where we pick up. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man, man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I'm going to retranslate that later, but I'll explain that. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. 
and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. I think we all ask the question. Our need to ask is automatic. It's instinctive. It comes uninvited. When serious illness strikes or when we or those close to us are hit by tragedy, particularly if something happens to a child, we ask, God, what did I do wrong? Why did you let this happen? We assume it happened because someone sinned. Even those of us who feel very confident that God is a loving God are likely to struggle with guilt when a crisis comes to us or our immediate family. Everything inside us asks, why? Did I do something? Did I say something? Do I lack faith? And then our minds go searching for an answer. And the pressure inside us is so great, sooner or later, we always come up with one and believe it deeply, whether or not there's any truth in it. This process of seeking to place blame on ourselves or others is the source of much human misery. Many of us can carry a burden of shame or hatred for the rest of our lives. I'm not going to ask how many have experienced this. I'm going to tell you what I assume, all of us. When trouble comes, when situations happen, there's something in the human psyche that just immediately begins to go searching for why. And some of us have come to the conclusion, maybe you've had some tragedy in your family, You've decided it was your fault. Had you just done this. And you can live with that horrible sense of shame and defeat the rest of your life. Or it wasn't you, but you decided it was that person. And you can live with hatred toward that person for, what, for, for having caused this in your mind the rest of your life. You know, it's interesting. It doesn't go away with time. I have been with people who are extremely elderly and are, 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 are you know, ready to pass away, but they're, they're, they're lucid. And I've, I've had conversations with them where I'm trying to talk to them about the Lord, but they're just as hard as steel. And you think, what is wrong with you? You're about to die for heaven's sakes. Wake up, you know? And, and you know what it is? It's often a, that person did something when they were younger in life that they can't forgive themselves for. They, it is so awful, and they, they, they dare not even breathe what it is. And, and I have, they have to me. And, I, you, and I, sometimes they have done some wild things, really wild. But they feel, I'm, I, I, I did that. I did that to my family. I did that to whatever the situation is. I can never be forgiven, Pastor. Yeah, they can, God can forgive some, but you just, you just don't, don't even come to me. They so hate themselves. They are so ready. They, they, you know, actually, and some of them feel death is just exactly what I deserve. I just deserve this. So this business of assigning guilt, of finding who to blame, it's, it's a real issue. And that's exactly what Jesus deals with in this passage. But we aren't the only ones who ask why when we experience a tragedy. Others watch us in fear and ask the same question. They too want to know 
who to blame so that they can avoid doing whatever it was that brought that suffering into our family. They don't want it to arrive at their door. Do you, do you realize that? When something bad happens to you, not only are you trying to figure out who to blame, but so are the people around you. They're trying to figure out what you did wrong. And they're, because they're, they're figuring out whatever he did, whatever she did, I don't want to do that because if I do that, it'll happen to me. So you've got them scrutinizing your life at least as close as you. So their minds try to solve the puzzle as well. And they too, just like you and I, come up with wrong answers. One would hope that the religious community would be immune from this process, but it is not. In fact, religious answers to the terrible question, why, can be the cruelest of all. This is the situation Jesus passed by on his way out of the temple. He saw a beggar who had been born blind. He saw a man with a disability so sad that everyone was determined to find out who was to blame for it. And that day he taught us to stop trying to answer that question. I want to take you back through this passage. It's really important to understand exactly what was said and what was not. And I'm going to do a little bit of adjustment here. You'll see what I, and I'll explain to you why. As he walked out of the temple, Jesus passed by a beggar who had been blind from birth. Apparently, he stopped and looked at the man, which drew the disciples' attention as well. The man must have been a familiar face to those who regularly came to the temple. Either his lifelong blindness was obvious due to a physical deformity or his personal history was well known because the disciples knew his condition extended back to his birth. And it was the fact that the man had been born with that disability that raised a moral question in the minds of the disciples. They asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he might be born blind? Their question reveals a common religious explanation for the cause of suffering. God sends suffering to punish people for their sins. So suffering proves there must be sin. What's the other book in the Bible that, that really deals with that exact subject? The book of Job. That's exactly what the book of Job is about. Based on that explanation, this man's blindness would therefore have, have to be the result of something he or his parents had done wrong. It's not easy to assign moral guilt to a child still in the womb. One has to speculate that an unborn child is capable of deliberate disobedience. Even more far-fetched is the thought that God might be punishing an unborn child for sin he or she was going to commit later in life. To justify the first suggestion that an unborn child is capable of deliberate disobedience, someone may have pointed to the struggle between Jacob and Esau in the womb. Do you remember that? It's uh, Rachel's pregnant. She's got twins. In there, Jacob and Esau, and uh, they're, they're struggling inside. They're wrestling inside, even in her womb. And she's aware of it and, and, and prophesies over this. And then as, as Esau is being born first, Jacob in the womb grabs his heel, you know, <laughs> like, the, no, you don't. I'm coming first, you know. And, and, and it's his name, Jacob, heel catcher. Yeah, so he's named for this. So, and so if, if that can go on, then... Do people have, make some sort of decisions or moral choices? 
when, when, I, when I was looking at this, I thought to myself, where in the Bible might you justify such a thing? And I came up with that. And then indeed, as I read, I found some rabbis had indeed pointed to exactly that for this point. So this is one thing people could say. Okay, uh, that baby in the womb is, 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 is got a will. Um, anyway, I'll move on. There is no biblical example to justify the suggestion that God might punish someone for sin they had not yet committed. Did you know that? In fact, the polar opposite is the case. God does not judge us or deal with us or discipline us even for things we have not done yet. You often wonder, why didn't he just kill that guy in the womb? You know, you look at some of the hideous individuals that have gone over human history and said, why didn't he stop that? Why didn't he kill him? Because he hadn't done anything yet. How many of us are are glad that he didn't snuff us out because of what we were going to do later in life? Yeah. He is a tremendously just Lord. He deals with us where we are now. He knows. Yes, he knows. But he deals justly where we are now. But looking for the cause of the man's blindness, the disciples did not stop there. They also asked if the guilt rested with the parents. In other words, was the child the innocent victim of his parents' sin? To justify this thought, this thought biblically, they may have pointed to the death of David and Bathsheba's first baby. Uh, you recall that situation? David basically uh, seduces uh, you know, this, the, the wife of one of his generals. She becomes pregnant. David has the, the husband, her, her husband killed for this. I mean, this is, it, David is just, he, he's just lost his bearings. He's just out of control. And he's done this kind of thing. Uh, the prophet comes and says, the child will, will die because of what you've done. And David then, if you recall, fasts and prays and seeks God with all his heart, trying for God to have mercy on, on, on him for this. And yet the child so you could try to say, well, was there an example where the, a child suffered for a parent's guilt? Well, there might be. Or the, or the, or the covenant made, God made with Israel, which warned the, that the guilt of one generation might bring calamity on future generations. Didn't Jeremiah lament that his, his generation bore the punishment due their fathers as well as their own? Regardless of how the disciples came to the conclusion that the man's disability was the result of someone's sin, their question was intended to do more than assign blame. They wanted to understand the spiritual cause of this suffering, probably so they could avoid having such punishment done to them. They were really asking, why did this happen? And Jesus immediately and bluntly rejected both of their suggested answers. He said, neither this man sinned nor his parents. His message was clear. They were trying to blame innocent people. The child and his parents were guiltless in this matter. But both were victims of a tragedy God was about to correct. Then Jesus said this, but so that the works of God in him might be revealed. The word revealed, let me, let me did, you, did you notice I changed the word order? I'm going to say it in a minute and make it clearer. Yours probably says that the works of God may be revealed in him. And I just said, no, it's that the works of God in him might be revealed. Yep. Let me tell you why I say that. Bear with me. You're just going to get just a bit of this. 
But this is important because I'm changing something here. And uh, so I better know what I, I better come out of the word. The, the Greek says, a Greek verb has an ending on it that indicates whether it's plural or, or singular, the subject of it. And so here it says that it might be, uh, yours may say manifest or revealed. The, the word comes from the word light. And so the idea is that when light shines on something in the darkness, we suddenly see it. So he said that it, and, and, and it says literally this, that it might be revealed. And then it has this phrase, the works of God in him. That doesn't make sense, that it might be revealed, the works of God in him. It should, if it was modifying the works, it, it just is, it's that kind of thing, it should be that the verb has got a plural ending, matching its subject. But it doesn't. I believe the entire thing is the subject. That the works of God in him might be brought to light. Why did I stop? What's going on here? Why did this happen? He doesn't answer. He says, but that the works of God in him might be revealed. We must work the works of the one who sent me. Here we go. He didn't say so that the works of God might be revealed in him. He said so that the works of God in him might be revealed. The difference is important. Early in his ministry, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he spoke to him about God working in someone's heart to prepare that person to believe in him. He told Nicodemus that the person who does truth comes to the light. Do you remember this? This is in that wonderful encounter with Nicodemus where he says, he that doeth truth, pardon me, this is King James, he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be manifested, exactly the same words, brought to light, revealed, that his deeds may be manifested, that they have been wrought, that's King James, wrought in God, that they have been worked in God. All the same words that are right here. Just reordered. That they, that they may be manifested, they wrought in God. What does it say? What it means is that when, when someone comes to the Lord, they, it shows that God has been at work in them, preparing him. Preparing, doing work inside that person, preparing their heart to see the light. So that when it comes, they can receive it. You say, well, look, Pastor, anybody who gets a healing like this, because this guy's going to come to the Lord, by the way. He's going to come to the Lord profoundly. I'll say it in a minute. You would say, anybody who, who gets a healing and a miracle like that would come to the Lord. They, they believe in Jesus. Oh, really? Go back to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, almost in the exact same area, very, right here, might, he might be in the same, very close, he, he, passed, he, he goes by at the pool of Bethesda, he goes by a man who was crippled for how long? Who remembers? 38 years. So the guy's 38 years, he can't walk, and he's on this pallet. Jesus comes up to him, and he says, do you, uh, do you wish to be made whole? And the guy says, I got nobody to throw me in the water when the, you know, the angel stirs it. Jesus ignores that and says, rise and walk. Take up your pallet and walk. The guy, after 38 years, I mean, you've got ankles straightening out. Appears that's what's wrong with him. He's, he's, I mean, suddenly he stands up, he picks up his pallet, and he walks. How's that for a miracle? What happened to that guy? Did he believe? Of course he believed, right? No, he turned him into the police. He did. He turned Jesus in to the religious authorities. He reported, he went and found him and reported his name. Amazing. 
What happens to this guy? Well, this guy's had the works of God. <laughs> this, guy's, this guy's ready. What does he do? He comes under tremendous fire for having this miracle. This is a stunning, breathtaking, troubling miracle for the, for the religious leaders. They come after him and they said, renounce him. I mean, they, they've grilled everybody to try to prove it was a fraud, and it isn't. And so they said, renounce him. We know he's a sinner. This Jesus. And, and the guy, now picture this. You're standing up to the top priests and leaders in your nation, and you're a beggar. Talk about guts. The guy says, well, here's an interesting fact. We know that God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. And yet this man, you say he's a sinner. And yet he has done something that no one in history has ever done. How is that? Do you want to be his disciple too? I did. He did. He's sassy. It's really cool. He's downright sassy with them. And, and, and then they really blow their top and they say, you were born in sin. You know, they, that's their theology. You're blind, you, you poor little beggar, because of your sin. You know, they, they're just right there full of that junk. And, and, uh, and, and what, you know what they did? They threw him out. Now, that means they excommunicated him from Judaism. He is pushed out of the religious community. He's not welcome anywhere. It says Jesus heard that he had been cast out. And he came and found him. <laughs> and he said, he said, uh, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe? And he said, who are you talking to? And he, and he says, I believe. And he fell and worshipped him. Two deeply different responses. Jesus stops. He should be running for his life. He stops because he sees something the Father's doing. And he looks at this man and everybody gathers. And he heals this man. For he says, he says he saw what the Father was doing. He saw that the works of God were at work in him. And he said that those things might be shown. This means that God prepared that person for the moment of revelation, for the moment when they would see the light. If, it is this, if this is the correct meaning of Jesus' words, then he never answered the disciples' question. He never entered into a discussion on the subject of why. He left that a mystery. And if so, then it's very important to note that he didn't say, as this passage is so often interpreted to mean, that God made the baby blind in the womb so that many years later when Jesus passed by, he could open those eyes. If Jesus did indeed mean that God made the baby blind in the womb so that he could perform this miracle, then the lesson here is that this particular man was chosen to suffer so that he might glorify God by receiving his sight. As we read on, we'll discover that the man became a disciple through this encounter and his eternal life was surely worth far more to him than those years of blindness. If what I'm saying is wrong, then that's the other meaning. And if that's what it means, if Jesus is saying, no, God blinded him in the womb so that I could come along now and, and, and do this miracle, then you would ask yourself, would you, in order, if you knew that you were going to be, by being born blind, and who knows how many decades, how old he is. 
If you were going to be born blind, but Jesus would come along, he would heal you, and in the process, you would receive eternal life. Would you do that? I would. Eternal life is the pearl of great price. I'm, I'm telling you, we're, we're, all, we're all going to die, folks. And, and, and eternal life is everything. What you and I talk about, what we, when we get in the Word and look at Jesus, we are looking at the most important things in our life. Do you understand? Everything, this is it. So if that were the lesson, yes. Uh, then, then the man uh, has been blessed in a sense. sense. He's received eternal life. But if Jesus didn't say that, if that was not the lesson he was teaching, if what he actually said was so that the works of God in him might be revealed, then Jesus wasn't explaining why this man was blind, but why he stopped to minister to him. After all, this man was only one of many beggars that lined those streets. Why Jesus stopped? When Jesus passed the man, he saw something in the spirit. The father pointed him out and revealed that he had been at work in the man, preparing him to believe. So Jesus stopped because he knew the man, though blind to natural light, was ready to receive spiritual light. He knew the miracle he was about to perform would reveal the works the father had already done inside that person's heart. He knew that the man would respond in faith and become his disciple. Another key to understanding this passage is the fact that the subject of Jesus' statement is plural, not singular. I'll explain. Jesus said it is necessary for us to work. Would you say us to work? Or it might be translated, we must work. Would you say that? We must work. What's surprising here is that he did not say, I must work. If this blind man was a special case whom God had blinded in the womb so Jesus could give him sight, then surely Jesus would have said, I must work the works of the one who sent me. But he didn't. He said, we. Which means he was modeling something he expected his disciples to continue doing after he ascended into heaven. Surely by saying we, he did not mean that God was going to disable more babies in the womb for future disciples to heal. No, that's why I wrote that no in, so in case you wonder what I think. He was alerting his disciples that he wanted them to do what he was doing. He had been vigilant, watching for the Father to show him people to whom he wanted him to minister. In the future, they too must be vigilant to watch for the Father's leading so that they too will do the works of the one who sent me. And then he added to that statement a note of urgency. He told them that they must do those works while it is day. For night comes when no one is able to work. Would you say that? While it is... Come on. When night comes when no one is able to work. In other words, he told them to seize every opportunity the Father showed them. Because those opportunities pass away quickly. Like daylight darkens into night. Jesus would, within six months, ascend to heaven and be gone. But that, who knows what opportunities are there. I think he stopped because that man was ready. He should be fleeing. He doesn't. He sees what the Father's doing, stops, for it's daytime for this man. There's an opportunity. People, we don't know how long somebody has. You and I don't know from day to day. 
And the Lord is just, he's just saying, don't pass by when you see God doing something. Do it now. Do it now. Don't say, oh, we can get to that later. There'll always be time. No, there won't. No, there won't. There are days and they followed by nights. The opportunities close off. Creating Adam. What happened next is one of the most amazing moments in the Bible. Jesus spat on the ground and made clay out of the spittle and dust. And then he smeared the clay on the man's eyes. For obvious reasons, there has been much speculation about this. Some suggest the ancients believed saliva had healing properties. That would be powerful spit, folks. But, <laughs> but there is almost total silence about why he made clay. Yet what that act symbolized was breathtaking. Jesus was revealing that he was the one who made Adam's eyes. He was the one who formed Adam out of clay. In effect, as he smeared the clay over that, the man's unformed eyes, he was saying, this is how I made Adam's eyes. In other words, he wasn't healing eyes. He was creating them. John will call it, I mean, this is a sign. Talk, talk about a sign. Look at, he's, there's other places uh, where Jesus spit. The Bible says, uh, this is such clear testimony of who he is. He is the son of God. And in the introduction, John says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. In Jesus' life. So out of him, he, he spits. And, he, you know, in some cases, he will do things. But never else did he do clay. Why this time? This man's born blind. He doesn't have eyes. We're not healing eyes. There's nothing to heal. This, who knows what's there? He spits out of him the life into the clay. And then he puts it on him. And you see him. I made Adam's eyes just like this. And he creates his eyes. Am I far-fetched in this? I am not. Go with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, look with me at verse 3. All things came into being through him. Who's him? Yes, it is. And don't let anyone give you that logos nonsense. Um, he, the, when Paul, John is talking about Jesus, there's no question who he's talking about. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Do you realize what that says? The Father orders that the, the worlds be created, but it was through His Son that the, of the age, he, who did it. The Father is the Father, but the Son is carrying out that which the Father has done. Let your eye go down to, uh, to, to uh, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was what? Made through Him. And the world did not know Him. Let your eye go down to verse 15. John the Apostle who writes this was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was there and listened to the things he's reporting. And he, he reports about John the Baptist, verse 15. John the Baptist 
testified about him and cried out saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for, why? He existed before me. John and Jesus are cousins through Mary. And John is six months older than Jesus. And he turns and says, he existed before me. He's talking about this divine son of God. By that act, Jesus revealed two truths. First, he proclaimed his divinity as God's son. He was the one who created Adam and Eve. But second, he demonstrated God's perfect will for that man. Though he had been born blind, God's will for him was not blindness, but sight. Isn't it something where you often say when there's some kind of, some kind of injury or some kind of thing like of a, of a child, you say, well, that was God's will. See, he, he, God must have willed this. We always slap that on the thing. And I want to... I point out what he's now doing is showing us God's will for the man. It's true if Jesus himself had not passed by, that man may never have seen. Very few believers have been able to minister at the level of power Jesus made possible for us. But even if that man had remained blind because Jesus had not come, we now know God's will for him. God wanted that man whole. His suffering had nothing to do with punishment for sin. Let me, let me stop. It's for sometimes for some of us, it, I think for a lot of us, it's not easy uh, to, to think of, 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 of what we think of things, what I would call in a binary fashion. Everything is either A or B, black or white, right or wrong, good or bad. There's no middle. And, and I grant you, we wave overdone the middle in our culture. And so when it comes to things like why do things happen to people, it's either the devil or it's God. Either the devil did it or God did it. And, 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 and either somebody, you know, you sinned or I sinned. But I mean, there's, why is this? And we break it down to this kind of thing. So there's always an accusation in it. I believe, and I'm going to use a term that I, I'll explain it. Just stay with me. I think there's actually what you might call impersonal evil. I think, and I, I, all sin, I mean, all, all suffering goes back to sin. It all came in basically from Adam and Eve onward. They opened the door. How are we supposed to live on this planet? We were supposed to live in the garden. We were supposed to have constant access to the tree of, of, of life. We were supposed to die. This dying thing, this disease thing, this whole thing is abnormal. It's, it's, it's not what's supposed to be here. We're living in a fallen, broken situation. But with that, the, Adam and Eve started the ball, but every generation has sinned their head off, including ours. And in the course of that sin, we have brought into the human race, into this world, all kinds of horrible things. In fact, you'll find even in, your, in the DNA of your body now, you've got like 50% of it is, is, is junk mixed into your DNA. It's come through all the diseases and the things that have been coming from our ancestors. We, we inherit all this thing. So, so when somebody gets sick or something happens to a child in the womb or anything like that, you can't turn and point the finger and say, it's somebody's fault here. Well, it is. It's Adam and Eve's and then everybody else's. <laughs> and then... 
If, if, if our ancestors weren't bad enough, we will damage our children. You know? Yeah, it's this accumulating, rolling tide of human sin. The stuff we put in food and the water and the things we've done to the planet and the spiritual influences we have invited in. And I won't even go there. But we've just opened the door to, 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 to the demonic. And then we spend our time going, was it you or you? <laughs> Folks, when you and I start assigning blame, when we start finding guilt, we are so out of our league, it's not even funny. I think that's why the Lord Jesus doesn't even answer the question. It's like, this is just out of your league. He doesn't answer them. He says, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch for what the Father's doing. And I want you to do what he does. That's what I'm doing. I want you to do that. In other words, when you come across a need, the question isn't why. The question's what. What's the Father doing? What am I supposed to do here, Father? Show me what you want me to do. Not assign blame. So what do we learn from this encounter? We learn a very important truth. We learn that when we or someone else is suffering, God is not asking us to look around for someone to blame. Are there situations in which human suffering is the result of sin? Yes. In fact, most or actually all human suffering is the result of sin. But God isn't the one who sends that kind of suffering. We bring it on ourselves or inherit the troubles previous generations have caused. Does God ever send suffering? Yes. There are definite examples of that in the Bible, but those occur when there has been willful evil and a stubborn refusal to repent. I give you some examples there. In other words, if you are the subject of that kind of issue, you don't need to ask why. You know why. You have already passed through all sorts of stoplights, and, and you are running headlong and ignoring God and know it. And he's, passed, he's warned you here, he's warned you here, he's warned you here, he's warned you here, and you didn't pass any of them, so by this time, he's really on your case. You see that in 1 Corinthians 5. It's one of the re references I give you there. Paul has a man who is having sex with his father's wife, for goodness sake, and, and, and they won't stop. And the church hasn't got the guts to discipline him. I think he's a rich kid. I do. I think it's a rich kid. And so they leave him alone, that kind of thing. And Paul is outraged. And he says, what are you doing? You should have grieved over this for heaven's sakes. And then, and then he, from the other side of the ocean, removes that young man's spiritual covering so that, what does he say? That, it, that, that he might, that he, I, 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 what is, help me, I just got, he says that Satan, that I, 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 I submit him to Satan, in other words, I remove the covering, that his body might be, uh, oh, bother, I'm gonna quote it right. <laughs> I know this one really well, but I'm just, I, and I got one of those freezes. Just a second. It's right there. On, it's, I have decided, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This isn't punishment. This is an emergency uh, activity. He's saying, I'm going to take the protection off of him, let him get some sort of physical problems going on here till he's alarmed and comes back to God. Do you follow that? So in other words, if, that's, if God's your cause like that, you already know. <laughs> you already, you, it's one of those like, it's, what was it, was it, uh, 
um, Jonah, when they said, we, well, we don't know why there's a storm. He goes, I do. <laughs> Throw me over. You know, he didn't need to have to wonder, why is this here? He knew perfectly well why there was a storm. Jesus didn't tell his disciples why, because answering that question wasn't their assignment. Their assignment was to ask what? What did they see the Father doing? And then they were to do that. Our assignment isn't to answer that question either. We only hurt ourselves and others when we try. Did you hear that? The difference in the way Jesus approached this man and the way the disciples approached him is painfully clear. They saw him as a moral problem to be solved. They took the role of judges looking for a way to assign blame. But thankfully, Jesus was there, so you and I get to see how God thought about that man. And what we observe is that he not only didn't blame the man or his parents, he loved him and had been drawing him to himself for years. When he looked at him, he didn't see a blind beggar. He saw a heart ready to receive spiritual light and the opportunity, because Jesus was there, to give him new eyes. The right question. The difference between what God saw and what the disciples saw should warn us against trying to answer the question of why. When suffering comes, we must fight against the impulse to blame someone we must humbly refuse to sit in God's judgment seat because we will inevitably be wrong. And wrong answers condemn innocent people, including ourselves. When suffering comes and it seems to touch everyone in one way or another, the right question to ask is what? Not why. What do I see the Father doing? And what does he want me to do about it? Answering that question properly always turns us from judges into servants. And then the healing began. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.